Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Chris Anichi. And we're so glad you can join us. On December 5th, which also happens to be my birthday, uh, the United States and European Union hosted the third Trade and Technology Council meeting in College Park, Maryland. While the first two meetings were focused on launching the TTC and setting the agenda, this third meeting was focused on moving toward concrete results. To that end, the transatlantic partners announced progress on several initiatives, including a joint roadmap on evaluation and measurement tools for trustworthy AI and risk management, an expert task force on quantum information science and technology, and connectivity partnerships with Jamaica and Kenya. However, despite the emphasis on an, on an affirmative agenda, the headlines leaning up to the ministerial were dominated by transatlantic tensions over electric vehicle tax credits in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which are being discussed in a separate task force, um, and those cast a cloud over the ministerial. So to discuss the takeaways from the TTC meeting, current irritants in the transatlantic relationship and opportunities for transatlantic cooperation in this space, we're really happy to welcome back our go-tos on this topic, uh, Tyson Barker and Fran Burwell. Welcome back both. Good to be here and happy birthday belated. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I think many listeners are know your bios by now, but a quick reminder, Tyson Barker is the head of technology and global affairs at the German Council on Foreign Relations or DGAP. He previously worked at Aspen, uh, Germany, where as deputy executive director and fellow, he was responsible for the Institute's digital and transatlantic programs. And Fran is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council and a senior director at, at McClarity Associates. Her work focuses on the European Union and US-EU relations, as well as a range of transatlantic economic, political, and defense issues. So let's rewind the tapes. Um, and as we mentioned in the introduction, the IRA loomed large, I think, over um, the TTC. Um, Fran, can you just kind of walk us back and give us a little bit of the context in which the TTC took place in? So you're right, Andrea, that the IRA really overshadowed the lead up to the TTC, and I think also actually overshadowed the meetings to some extent. Um, the last TTC had made EVs, electric vehicles, kind of a centerpiece of where the US and EU were going to collaborate in the future, especially on charging infrastructure and compatible rules for charging and standards for charging infrastructure. And then in the IRA, the US imposes uh, um, tax credits on EVs that do not allow for uh, those credits to be used for cars made outside, assembled outside the United States or with batteries that have a certain range of components not from the United States. And the EU saw this as discriminatory. Um, but along with EVs and batteries, the other issue about the IRA, which actually I think is more serious, is that the IRA provides for some significant tax credits and subsidies for um, renewable energies in this country. And the EU perceived this as a, an effort to deindustrialize Europe, to attract European industries to come over here and set up instead of to continue uh, generating energy and working in Europe. Um, there is an additional structural problem, if you will, 
in that energy prices in Europe are much higher than they are in the United States. And there is a perception among some Europeans that this is um, the fault of US companies. Uh, so it kind of, the IRA kind of landed as a bombshell in the middle of this environment um, while Europe is struggling with high energy costs because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and also, I mean, the Europeans too are going to subsidize their energy, their transition to renewable energy. We have the next gen EU program, which is the post-COVID recovery program, which has huge amounts of green subsidies in it. And then we also have the Repower EU program. But there is a structural element here, particularly around energy prices. Um, I think, you know, the task force, which was set up separately, uh, has the um, charge of finding some kind of a uh, uh, of a solution to this. I think a step forward, a significant step forward was President Macron's visit on the Thursday and Friday, the week before the TTC, and particularly uh, President Biden's statement in the press conference that he never meant, it was never meant to target allies and partners or to disadvantage them in any way. And that legislation often has glitches uh, and that we should find a solution. He didn't say what that solution would be. He didn't say we're going to fix it, um, but at least that calmed things down a bit. It's clear this, that the IRA is something that was talked about in the TTC quite a lot. Um, and my impression watching the uh, press conference and, and everything afterwards, the stakeholder event afterwards is that there's been a big focus in the TTC on supply chains and subsidies and how to do that without having a subsidy war. Transparency um, and things like that as we launch subsidies. And I think that that's gonna be an increasing focus. What we're gonna do about cheap energy in the United States, luring European companies, I think that's a big problem. And there's not a, there's not a solution right now, so. At any rate, so it did overshadow the TTC. I would say nonetheless, and we can come back to this, that the TTC on its own right with what it was established to do, which was not to solve the IRA, um, was also a very successful uh, a very successful meeting this time. Tyson, anything you wanna to add to that? And I mean, I think the subsidy race point is interesting because so far the US response has been, well, you know, Europe is free to, you know, use their own subsidies as well. How has that been received um, by the Europeans, do you think? Well, I, a couple of points. I think France pretty much is completely right on these points. I do think it's been a little bit overblown. And I think that the IRA has, as uh, Fran mentioned, become a little bit of the whipping boy or for the uh, the structural fragility in the European economy as a knock-on effect of Russia's war on Ukraine. So, uh, you know, it is, it is a massive amount of money we're talking about in the IRA for uh, the green transition. We're talking about investments of around $350 billion. That is about 2% of European GDP, to put it in European terms, or about 8% of German GDP. I mean, this is a huge amount of money. Um, and of course, there's a lot of, I think there are plurality of views in Europe about what exactly is happening. The French have been much more assertive and much more vocal about their uh, concerns. Um, so to have 
the breakthrough, and, and that's what Bruno Le Maire called the meeting with President Macron and uh, Biden, a major breakthrough uh, after the state visit. And to have the president, President Biden, say that there are tweaks that can be made, and some people have pointed to the term free trade agreement and whether or not it's capitalized or lowercase and what that means for the interpretation of that, you know, give some flexibility. There isn't much time for, for a great deal of flexibility because these tax subsidies are meant to kick in on uh, January 1st already of next year. Uh, but, you know, I I think that if you have a best practice, uh, frankly, you know, given the fact that we're talking about a renaissance in industrial policy, techno-industrial policy, in the United States, in China, in Europe, in Japan, in other countries, and you're talking about... Um, you know, countries and and blocks that need to be responsive first and foremost to their populations, that the CHIPS Act and the the semiconductor um, industrial policy provides the best path forward, which is how do you create complementarity while at the same time creating rebuilding an industrial base? And so I think that when Fran says, you know, more transparency, more working together, more complementarity at the outset of these policies being implemented, I think that we have that with with semiconductors, and that's why it, there isn't as much tension around that issue as there has been around green technology, because that came kind of uh, out of left field, uh, to be quite frank. You know, I don't think anybody really expected the IRA to to get through, or very very few people when it got through in the summer. Um, so I think that that is not only a sign of the best practice, but also an indication of why the TTC is important because the TTC put in place this kind of structural communication on industrial policy that's gonna be necessary in other areas in the future. We're gonna come back to that. I know Krista has a question, but I wanna push you on the tweaks. Have either of you gathered any clues about what those tweaks could be, or is that really kind of an unknown, still a, a big unknown at this point? I think it's a bit of an unknown. I have heard that there could be a delay in the implementation because Treasury, which is now responsible, I understand, could seize, you know, a lot of minefields in writing rules. And so, you know, it's it's relatively short term. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that there's a delay of some months um, while they try and figure things out. I think there will be something about um, partners and allies, some, some way of, you know, coping with that. Um, but it won't be totally easy, and it will, to some degree, depend upon people up on the hill being willing to say, oh, yeah, we did write it that way, but if you want to interpret it that way, it's okay. <laughs> so we'll have to see. I mean, I would be more confident, although there is a bill on the hill um, pushing back, giving a three-year moratorium for this particular rules, rules of origin requirement. The reason being because there's not enough infrastructure in the yeah. United States currently to fill the demand that the IRA will create. Um, but I, I think that they're going to be try to work within the parameters of the law as it's currently written. And the other problem, of course, is that the Japanese and the Koreans both have cars that will be very much affected by this. And it's, you know, they've been doing more than they've ever done in terms of export controls and sanctions on Russia. And now we go and tell them that their EVs don't get... and. You know, their EVs are, for the most part, going to be cheaper than European EVs. I mean, the people who buy electric uh, electric Audis, probably the car doesn't qualify for the, the limits on the purchase price in the bill. And the people probably make more than the limits on the income. So, you know, 
I think we have to keep in mind that the Japanese and the Koreans are affected by this too. Kind of on the macro level of this question of irritants in the TTC, you know, we saw this with the Inflation Reduction Act that this dialogue was moved to a separate task force. We've seen this with the data privacy framework, with the US-EU competition dialogue. You know, kind of where do you fall in this debate on is that working to separate these irritants from the TTC to kind of create guardrails for an affirmative agenda? Or do we need to just do it all in the TTC? Is that the primary venue here? Kind of where do you guys fall on that debate? Tyson, let's start with you. Oh, I, I really, I really appreciate this question because I think that this is the if there's a clever aspect in the design of the TTC, it has been to kind of uh, create a, what I call a TTC ecosystem, where a lot of these irritants kind of become in the orbit that are air-gapped outside of the core TTC, so they can focus on kind of uh, forward-looking issues to kind of try to preempt the path dependency that leads to future irritants. So if you look at things like the, the issues that you mentioned, uh, the DMA, which a lot of people said this has to be the core of the TTC, if the DMA and, and Privacy Shield aren't solved in the TTC, then it's not worth its salt. Um, and both were kind of spun out. Um, but at least on the, the privacy shield issue, uh, we have seen uh, at least what looks like it's going to move towards a re resolution with uh, the commission issuing what they call an adequacy finding, which will give this corridor, this free flow of data corridor, will restore it uh, as soon as next week. So, and that I don't think would have been possible without the TTC's existence. So the TTC creates this kind of gravitational pull. Um, even with the IRA, you know, the first emergency call that the commission had at a ministerial level with the United States was with the TTC uh, principles. That was, I think, in early October or late September on this issue. So then they decided, okay, well, we need to create a task force because it, we don't have all the equities represented here, but it's still tethered to the TTC. I'll raise another irritant that was mentioned by uh, Gina Raimondo in the stakeholder meeting. It's the issue of uh, the European uh, cybersecurity certification for cloud computing, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, it's a major, seen as very discriminatory, potentially, if it goes in the direction that the French are looking to go uh, in the model of um, you know, their, their cyber certification rules for, for public procurement. Uh, and Gina Raimondo said, you know, we talked about it, it was brought up, and I think that it will continue to accompany the TTC, but will it be the core? I don't think so. And and to be quite honest, I think that helps the resilience of the TTC, because if we've learned anything from past failures of similar bodies, they can get scuttled by very ma minor irritants. I think of, you know, the classic example, I hate to bring it up, Fran's going to roll her eyes, but it's a chlorinated chicken in the Transatlantic Economic Council. Yeah, you know, where they have this kind of symbolic irritant that if it doesn't get solved within the core of the of this uh, body, that the whole the whole process gets sunk. And the TTC has built that in, and I think that's a good thing. So I would largely agree with Tyson. I will say there are certainly people in Washington and Brussels watching the TTC who are saying, if it can't solve the big problems, what good is it? Um, but I do think if we had put the big problems steel tariffs, data transfers, Boeing Airbus in a pot and said, okay, TTC, this is what you have to work with. It would have never gotten off the ground. And what we really need is a forum for continued communication and interaction. And when we, where we
we can start to think about some of these um, challenging issues that are coming down the pike at us. The TTC is actually very light on the traditional trade agenda. And I was asked a question earlier today and had to kind of go through and look for things on agriculture. There's nothing. So, you know, I mean, it's avoiding, nobody has an appetite for that either right now. So rather they would work on these forward looking things. I do totally agree with Tyson that because you put these principles in the room, they are not, not going to talk about these issues. And so that actually gives kind of an action forcing event. Even if with the data transfers, Gina Raimondo, Secretary of Commerce, first couple, first TTC, she was like, we're gonna have a solution at the first TTC. And that didn't work, but it kind of put pressure on everybody. Um, but I do think that we are coming to a time when the TTC is going to have to prove that it can handle something a little bit more um, difficult than just the future. And that's with the AI roadmap. We are now going down this road um, to develop definitions, taxonomies, our approach to international standard setting bodies, et cetera, et cetera. In the next six months, before the next TTC, we can expect that the EU AI Act will be finalized. It won't come into effect, but it'll be finalized. And the question is, is that going to be compatible with the roadmap? It's not clear yet. It's not clear that it's not either, but the TTC to so far has kind of kept away from current legislation. But, and to some degree, Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, they were already done by the TTC got by the time the DTC got going. So there's nothing, a timing was just wrong for that. But the AI Act, I think, is the first real test of whether friction in the relationship that is sometimes created by specific legislation is something that can be addressed in the TTC, especially since it's working right on something, you know, trying to align US and EU approaches to AI. So that's what I'm looking for in the next six months. I think just to continue for one more second on this question, which is kind of holistically, you know, you're, you both have hit on this point that the TTC is designed to address these forward-looking issues. What were the big things that came out of this uh, meeting, right? So if meeting one was kind of focused on launching and maybe meeting two was a little bit more on agenda setting, now if we're trying to get into the good stuff, like was there, what was the good stuff that came out of this? Uh, well, I, I mean, the, the, I guess the biggest, it, there were no headlines, and uh, it was not a headline-grabbing meeting. It was a, you know, nose-to-the-grindstone kind of meeting this time, and I think that that will need to be addressed in the future. Um, there were a lot of little wins, you know, some discussion around uh, megawatt heavy-duty vehicle charging and, and EV charging stations. There were talks about conformity assessments and mutual recognition agreements in different areas. Uh, there was this new labor dialogue that forced, uh, focused on forced labor and due diligence, which is obviously uh, directed towards China. I guess the biggest uh, biggest ticket item was the uh, launch of these new ICT partnerships with mm -hmm. uh, Kenya and Jamaica, which are based on the principles for trustworthy vendors, uh, for trustworthiness that came out of the SACLE meeting, basically meaning, you know, we're going to start this um, you know, ICT uh, development uh, agenda, 
which is somehow tethered to the um, Partnership for Global Investment and Infrastructure and the Global Gateway Project of the European Union uh, as a counter to the Belt and Road Initiative. And we want to create uh, guidelines that will shut out uh, companies, Chinese companies that are essentially state-owned enterprises or proxies for the Chinese uh, you know, Communist Party, um, generally. Uh, and that's good that they launched these two these two new partnerships. I mean, they have some interesting components. The Jamaican one is looking at smart cities, is looking at uh, mobile connectivity, real infrastructure. The Kenyan one is, is supporting their vision of their digital modernization. Um, so that's great that, that that's getting the latch up and the lift that it needs from the, the Euro-Atlantic. Um, I think the expectation was there would be about 10 of these. When they when they started thinking about this after Saclay, and we we ended up with two, so we gotta give it a little more lift. Um, there are a couple other areas that didn't really get off the ground this time. Um, they did create a new institutional relationship between the Development Finance uh, Corporation, of the United States, and the European Investment Bank. Let's see where that goes in the future. But you know, these are all mm, okay, interesting. But they need more lift. We need to get higher higher altitude on all this stuff in order to prove this success. I will say this to their credit, you know, the, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, which used to be called Build Back Better World, as this counter to BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, was really launched almost two a year and a half ago. And we're only now starting to get these concrete projects. So the fact that the TTC was able to get to concrete projects is in and of itself quite an achievement, um, given that the G7 is still lagging, quite frankly, uh, on this. Um, but, you know, there, there's more that could be done. Um, you know, there was uh, the Europeans took up the Declaration of the Future of the Internet. They took the stakeholder component. Um, you know, there's some statements about uh, protecting human rights defenders. And a really interesting point, and let's see where this goes, about monitoring internet shutdowns globally. Yeah. And I think they're going to try to look for patterns in internet shutdowns. Now, what, what would be neat or interesting to see in the future is what can we do about internet shutdowns, not just gather the data, which is quite important, but can the U.S. and Europe support together, you know, digital um, doctrine that provides greater connectivity as a fundamental right. Can they think together about the kind of VPN infrastructure, which is still lacking in many authoritarian and conflict spaces in places like Russia and Iran? I mean, these are things when you talk to RFERL, for example, they say, we still have a lot of need here. <laughs> and this would be I'll a really I'll put in a plug, way. Tyson. We are have a podcast coming. We just had a conversation with Jamie Fly um, and their Ooh. Russian language folks. So, and we did talk a lot about VPN. So a little plug for the next episode of Brussels Sprouts. But think about if the TTC4 could just dedicate 20 million to this. I think that that could be a game changer. Those are the kind of wins that we should be looking for in the near future. I, I would say that the things that I looked at was the supply chain and subsidies issues. So they set up two administrative agreements. Very boring, very essential to governments actually changing, actually exchanging information, right? And the roadmap, the AI roadmap. Um, I'm intrigued by something that was a bit of a damp squib, which was the uh, Initiative for Sustainable Trade. Um, it kind of came out. It's now got a name. Nobody knows quite what it is or what it's supposed to do. Will it 
get something uh, in the next six months? Will we have something uh, su something sustainable <laughs> in the next six months? It does strike me that working group two, which is on climate and uh, clean tech, has been among the weakest in terms of things that have been produced. And I don't know why. Um, I'm also very interested by the fact that the TTC, more than I imagined when it started, has taken up the the cause of democracy. The, the uh, Declaration for the Future of the Internet, I was at a conference in Prague where that was a big focus in a US-EU type of discussion. Um, and then the human rights, the Declaration on Human um, Defending Human Rights Defenders Online, and, and then as well, the um, internet shutdowns. But the flip side of that, and this is also um, an impact of the um, of the deliverables being modest but essential building blocks, is the way I would think of them. Is that the business community is not really excited about this. Uh, they wanted the TTC to come in and solve these big issues to make sure that, well, Europe, US companies weren't being picked on in Europe and vice versa. Um, and they haven't seen that in the TTC yet. And they're not, you know, roadmap for AI. Yes, there are technical people in the business businesses that are excited about that. But for the most part, um, the C-level suites and stuff like that, that's too far, that's too far ahead in terms of, you know, too long in terms of the time frame. And I think this is going to become increasingly important. Um, this TTC on the trade and labor dialogue made a big deal out of having labor at the table as well as business. And this administration, as you know, is very strong on labor as a participant in a lot of these things. Um, so that's all great, um, but it is um, not something that is going to help build the TTC over time. One of the things we're looking at now is it's only two years until 2024. And the EU will go through a transition then, although I think any new president of the commission is going to want to continue a major forum for working with the United States. But there may be a new US president as well. And having business support for the TTC is going to be essential if anyone other than President Biden is in the White House um, to have it go forward over the next, between 2024 and, and past. You both rightly pointed out this meeting was about building blocks. It was about, in a way, low-hanging fruit, some small wins. Um, as you're thinking about some of the most important issues in this space, and you look back to that May 22 joint statement that was 20 something pages long of all of those initiatives, where should we head next? And what do you think are those high impact, high priority projects that the TTC needs to turn to for TTC4 that maybe, you know, in some ways industry would be a little bit happier about? Like, can, what are you thinking of as those high impact, high priority types of initiatives where we should head next? Just a couple things. One, when Fran says that, you know, the TTC could turn into a pumpkin after 2024, that's not just her opinion. Uh, you know, uh, Margarete Vestager said the same thing. We're still in a proof of concept phase for the TTC. So getting to TTC4 will be quite important. 
And uh, the commission, you know, this is led by the commission and, and the principals on the US side at the three departments. But, you know, having it in Sweden, which, you know, has been impacted by the uh, IRA as well and has expressed some concern, but at the same time is extremely Atlanticist, is extremely tech savvy, and it's extremely trade, uh, you know, I, I heard somebody call themselves the free trade Taliban once, so I <laughs> really cares about trade. Um, you know, I think that that will do a great deal of service for the TTC, just in providing the kind of on the ground infrastructure. As far as, you know, areas to see some lift, I mean, Fran mentioned AI. I think that is something that's going to play a role in getting private sector interest if it can be done right. I think that's why uh, the principles lean so heavily on, you know, ironing out the, the glitches in between now and the next TTC meeting. But just to add a couple of other areas, you know, as we're looking for, you know, the greenfield areas that are not yet, you know, hardened, uh, I would say, you know, things like metaverse governance, I would say uh, U.S. participation in, uh, you know, standard setting bodies or private sector participation, non-European private sector standard setting bodies in Europe. It's an open debate as to whether or not private sector should continue to have a role. 6G standards, we really should start talking about it now. What does that mean, you know, to have, you know, trustworthiness? What are the, the safety standards, the cybersecurity standards we want to see there? Um, you know, the questions around, you know, should uh, platforms and, and, you know, tech companies be required to pay telcos for internet traffic? quite important. And then and then uh, final is, you know, the whole area around IoT governance. You know, this is going to be, um, it's, it's, a, it's a debate that's starting in Europe. And then the, and as a final area, you know, and I know this might sound, you know, wild, and we don't know where this is going, but also metaverse governance, because we are talking about, you know, when you talk about 6G, you're talking about AR, uh, uh, AR and VR. And that's going to be something that we should start to talk about now. All that kind of platform regulation stuff that we have right now that's just gone through Europe, it's very much inflected by 2015. You know, this is going to go through a big update because we're talking about a really immersive kind of platform experience. And that's going to bring all the questions that we've had around disinformation, radicalization, market power, no, 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 data privacy, cyber but but to the upteenth power. So what does that mean? And that's the kind of conversation we can start right now. So I think there are, as Tyson points out, a lot of things that they could do, but I think we have to be careful not to overload the agenda over the next six months. I would like to see a really comprehensive approach on supply chains and subsidies. I think AI, I said what, you know, it needs to be coordinated or harmonized or something with the AI Act. So we know that that can happen, that the TTC can influence legislation. Um, and I think we're at a point where we need to find a couple of headlines, which is gonna be hard, uh, but I think that it can be done if you pick just one or two. And maybe it is a partnership on supply chains, um, something like that. I think we could talk about launching some negotiation on green goods. I don't want to say trade, the dirty word, but something that is uh, about sustainable trade, but having to give it legs, which the current initiative has nothing. Um, I've been struck by how the TTC within the US-EU bubble has generated its own weight. 
we now all look for the meetings. Uh, I have been in so many TTC discussions this week, right? And everyone is, I mean, it shows to me that it has become the main forum in US-EU relations. And in between the meetings, we often see Dombrovskis has been here a whole lot more. Um, Vestager has been here a lot more and meeting with Raimondo and others. There's a lot more, as, as Tyson said, you know, the first critical call about the IRA happened among the TTC leadership, et cetera, right? So there's a lot more that this has interchanged, that this has generated. But now we need to make the bubble go a little bit broader. It needs to start hitting those who are not so focused on transatlantic relations. And I think supply chains and subsidies is something, redoing our industrial base is something that I think has a much broader audience. And we need to show the US and the EU together needs to show a path forward that we can then take and, and talk to our friends in Japan and Korea, Australia and other places about this as well. And I think that the next six months is going to be the right time. In fact, we may find that the IRA serves as a catalyst for pushing this discussion in a, you know, through a bad place and into a good place. Um, so that's one of the things that I'm really looking for. And then I think you can do something green uh, in the TTC that would be more headline grabbing and, and speak to those who are engaged in climate um, politics on both sides. I don't know what that is. Uh, I'm gonna think a lot about that over the next few weeks, but I do think that there is an opportunity there. And we do we do need to start generating the headlines, not just the modest building blocks. Well, I like your optimism, Fran. So, but <laughs> uh, one dynamic we haven't talked a whole lot about is, the, is China. Um, and I wonder if you both could comment on the extent to which that theme played through the TTC um, and yeah, what role that, that had. I mean, and, and, and really your view on whether or not China is still an irritant in the transatlantic relationship or if it's more of a unifier now than it has been in the past. Um, how, how did that play in the TTC? Formally in the TTC, China was only mentioned once and that had to do with medical devices. Um, so on a formal level, it was a very minor thing. But to me, the whole structure of the TTC, in a sense, or the, the things that it talks about in terms of supply chains and um, AI, uh, democracy, these are all things that are aimed at China, um, as well as other techno-authoritarians, to use the term of art. Um, Europe has a much harder time actually naming China. And I think we Americans just have to learn to live with that. Um, but we're talking about investment screening being strengthened. This is all good. Um, I do think that we are not in the same place yet. We are closer than we were. I think many Europeans look askance at the latest set of export controls, which kind of cut off a whole bunch of, you know, a whole level of uh, technologies for um, China. And China is still an investor in Europe, um, in places like Hamburg, but at a level where they don't have a seat on the decision-making board. 
So I think that that is still going on. Europe is still kind of like, it's a big market. We can't cut ties. We don't want to decouple. They're kind of allergic to the word decouple. I don't worry about it so much right now um, because I think the Biden administration is a little bit more um, aggressive than the Europeans. I do worry if some of the anti-China rhetoric in Congress kind of picks up more and, and builds more that way, that it, that could be something that the Europeans can't see themselves as a partner to. And I think right now what we've done is raise awareness in Europe, actually starting with the Huawei discussions under the last administration um, of some of the issues about trusted vendors, et cetera, um, that have to do with China. Can can I just add a couple of um, uh, points on this? I mean, uh, in the TTC itself, as Fran mentions, there's a real delicate balancing act that has to take place with the, the commission because it doesn't represent a unified uh, point of view on China. There's really a plurality of views in Europe, not least of which is the country I live in, Germany, which uh, there was a piece released by Olaf Scholz uh, this week in Foreign Affairs, where he really talked about trying to de-escalate de block mentalities. And he sees Germany as a real kind of geoeconomic bridge between the United States and, and uh, China, and that Europe needs to play that role in a kind of multipolar world. And of course, getting back to the fragility of the European economy, specifically as in, in the wake of, of Russia's war, you know, China is seen as a pillar of stability in trying to keep, you know, keep the lights on, literally, basically, in, in Europe. Um, that said, uh, the TTC has done a couple things. One is by creating the uh, the quick latch up on the foreign direct product rule on semiconductors with regard to Russia in the run up to TTC, the second TTC meeting, um, it did create relationships on export controls uh, on semiconductors, which now as of uh, October 7th, the US has uh, applied a much more stringent set of uh, controls on semiconductor IP and also the ability of U.S. nationals to uh, maintain uh, semiconductor uh, producing equipment, which will have a major impact on Europe's largest tech company by market capitalization, ASML. So it is that friction is there. It's a little bit beneath the surface on that, but there's still those relationships. The other thing is, if you look at a lot of the dialogues, if you look at the labor dialogue on forced labor and due diligence, that's about China. If you look at the uh, the uh, you know the new concrete projects with Jamaica and Kenya, which are enforcing the ICT principles on trustworthiness, that's about China. So there are a lot of China elements in this, but at the same time, you know, Fran says that there's a little bit of convergence in in view on China. That's not necessarily the case in all areas. Um, she mentioned, you know, the Hamburg port situation, which caused caused a major debate in, in Germany. There was some stringency on uh, the acquisition of a, a chips company here in Germany, another another small company in, I think it was a, a wafer making company in Munich. But as of right now, 60% of uh, 5G mobile network equipment in Germany is produced by Huawei in this current round that is being rolled out currently. That's more than in 4G. So even though we had the Huawei debate from a couple of years ago, we kind of put a pin in it and said, okay, well, that we solved that. And, and it actually hasn't changed that much necessarily, even as the political climate, uh, the geopolitical climate with China has rapidly deteriorated. So I think that there's some, some grounds for, for question here. 
Um, and I think that there are going to be some requirements for more bilateral dialogue with member states on this. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, both of you have, have touched on the fact that the TTC has become really kind of the focal point for transatlantic discussions. Um, on this China issue, though, like how, how do you see the TTC as interfacing or related to the U.S.-EU dialogue on China? Are, is there overlap between these things? Are they harmonious? I mean, I, I, I hear inklings of folks who think that there hasn't been enough kind of transatlantic coordination on the China piece. I'm wondering where that, you know, why that is, given that we have these two bodies. Well, there's, I think, go ahead, Tyson. Just, I'm going to say something really quick. Uh, there's something in Germany called Kanzlersache. The, it's the it's the affairs of the chancellor. It's so important that the only person who really speaks for Germany is the chancellor. And I think that that's kind of a similar thing for Europe and China. It's a member state thing. I mean, member states guard this pretty, pretty jealously. So, yes, you can have conversations with commission officials and they and they try to, um, you know, coordinate a per, per perception, but they can't really they don't have the flexibility to move because the member states are the ones who really control the perception generally. Yeah, that's an important point, yeah. No, and I would say that it is the differences between the member states. I mean, we have Lithuania on one side, you know, which is in the middle of a trade battle with, with China. We have members of the European Parliament who have been sanctioned by China. Um, I find increasingly when you go to conferences in Europe, it used to be that there would be someone, if it was a tech, trade, economic, conference, there'd be someone from uh, one of the Chinese ministries that whatever country you were in was trying to, especially in Central Europe, was trying to get to invest. Right? The most recent one I was at had the digital minister from Taiwan. So, you know, it's, it's changing to some degree. I think we just, though, I mean, in the TTC, the, what the TTC does is take some of the discussions, I think, that are in the US-China, the US-EU dialogue on China, which is a strategic level dialogue, right? It's it's not about trade and technology so much. It's about geopolitics, et cetera. And then in the TTC, you can take the offshoots of that and say, okay, how are we going to do this? How do we coordinate on export controls? And to what extent can we coordinate on export controls? So there are different the dialogues are meant to do different things. Some dialogues really are talk shops, and that's good. That's fine. I think the TTC is meant to do more, um, and it does it in a very uh, sometimes peculiar way, <laughs> but it does move the issue forward. I actually want to hang on China just a minute longer and put a finer point on a hypothetical question that you just raised, Fran, which is, how to coordinate on export controls. I mean, we saw following the October 7th um, U.S. restrictions on semiconductors to China that the U.S. failed to reach an agreement with the Netherlands and Japan despite consulting them. I mean, we're getting reports now, of course, that, you know, there might be a little bit of movement on this issue in the Netherlands and a desire to at least align controls. Did the U.S. approach this correctly, and how would you recommend we really work on coordinating these export controls moving forward so they, you know, don't become a big irritant or inject a lot of friction into the relationship? Well, I would contrast the October 6th export controls with the export controls put on Russia in the wake of the invasion, where we decided that we didn't need secondary controls if 
um, the other country, the exporter, was going to adopt the same restrictions that we had. That's the first time we've ever done that, right? But that was an urgent and drastic action, right? We were we were responding quickly to a, a, um, a huge transgression, an obvious transgression of the international order as we understood it. China has not presented us with that. And I think there's a real difference of opinion between the United States and Europe in terms of how stringent we should be on China at this point. So I think the US needs to understand that they may not, our allies may not always respond every day. And you can't just say, come on allies, let's go, you know? Um, but with some diplomacy, you can moderate those distinctions. You can figure out, there's, there's a constant balance between, do you wanna do everything that you want to do or do you want to do some of it with partners? And I think that's, we don't have the right, we're not at the right point on, on that yet. Can I add one thing? I think Fran got it, it's events. I mean, you know, Russia invading Ukraine or uh, escalating this eight year war was just a major, it was an action forcing moment. And what was the action forcing moment for October 7th? I mean, I, the, it does. it's not as clear to the European public. It's not as clear to member states. I would say one aspect of it, one slice of it, is the political climate in the United States, the expectation that uh, at the time that the uh, Republicans were going to control Congress. Of course, they do control one house of Congress, and they've made it very clear that they're going to set up a select committee uh, to confront China as a challenge. So the administration wanted to try to preempt some uh, domestic narratives that are taking place. Europeans are astute watchers of American politics. Uh, that is a point that they will understand. Um, but all the, the prep, the run-up prep was, I think, a little thin um, in, in running up to the October 7th uh, export control announcements. Now, that there might be reasons for that because you want to keep this information confidential. But uh, it wasn't, it, I, I think it caught some people off guard, including some of the companies involved. All right, to bring us home and wrap us up, the last question, we're gonna look forward a little bit. What will you two be watching in the next six months in the run up to the next TTC meeting? What should what should we all be paying attention to? Well, I would say a, a couple things. One is, you know, all the kind of stakeholder discourse that's happening in between now and the next TTC. Uh, Vestager announced this stress test for the AI roadmap. That's going to be an important one. There's going to be some other technical discussions. We have to do as much lift as stakeholders as possible between now and the next TTC. I think that that's what is expected of all of us as, you know, co-owners of this project. And then the other thing I'd be watching is uh, Terry Breton, has uh, you know canceled his participation in this TTC. Incidentally, he mentioned his openness to becoming the next commission president this week. So uh, watch watch for him in this space. Uh, but he has said that he will uh, come to Washington in the first quarter of next year to discuss a lot of these kind of technology questions and industrial policy questions. So how does Thierry Breton try to shape that transatlantic dialogue on all these kind of questions? And how is it different from the rest of the commission? Well, I would say that aside from Thierry Breton's ambitions, we need to be watching what actually happens among the TTC leadership. 
And I think that um, I'm gonna sound like a broken record. I'm gonna say we need to do something really solid on supply chains, subsidies, this whole thing. I think as well um, that we need to find some way of, I would link that with some way of resolving the IRA. We won't resolve all of it because some of it is just simply structural. Um, but I think that we have to get that tied down so it's not such a distraction. I'm also starting to look at the steel and aluminum tariffs negotiations for green steel and how do we balance that. I think that if you can get it a little bit farther along in the task force that it's in, and I don't hear good things about how it's going, but I, I think that is the type of topic that we can start to work on. Um, I, I do think that it's important to try and figure out the relationship between the AI roadmap and the AI Act. But I'm also looking to see, are there going to be more projects like the ones in Kenya and Jamaica? Is this going to be a pipeline as opposed to two, uh, two pilot projects that that's it? You know, so, and we don't know what, I guess one thing is, that I've learned is that you can't predict the future even over six months. We could be in a radically different place. And if we have something really uh, significant in the geopolitical world coming up, one of the questions will be, is the TTC able to cope with that? Is it an instrument to help the US and the EU work through that? If, if it involves trade and tech, those types of elements, does it help? generate the right type of response. So those are the types of things that I'm looking for. This was great as always. Um, Tyson and Fran, you guys are my TTC whispers. Um, and I always feel smarter after these conversations. So thank you so much for taking your time to break it all down. Um, I know our listeners are thankful too. Some of these issues can be hard to follow. So we're very thankful for people like you who can simplify it and um, and, and summarize it and synthesize it. So thank you so much for doing this. And I am sure we will be back at it uh, in the next six months. We'll see you in six months time. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.